us in the Sunday service a few weeks ago, and last Wednesday night we just started Matthew, so the first book of both the Old and New Testament. And I was telling the body Wednesday night that we have not been in the book of Matthew since 1995. And uh, it seems like it hasn't been that long, but it really has. And uh, so it's fun once again to get into that book and study that book. And um, we haven't been into Genesis since, uh, I think, 93. And so uh, as we finally made our way through the Bible, we're going back now and making it way our way through again. But let's read a few of the verses as we get into these uh, passages this morning. Let's start at chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've begotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat portion. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well... Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do well, sin. If, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then go all the way to the end of the chapter at verse uh, 25. Adam and had relationships with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For he said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth, to Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called him Enosh. And the men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And this is a book of generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them uh, man in the day when they were made. And when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son, in his own likeness, according to his image, and his name, and named him Seth. And the days of Adam, after he had uh, become the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. As we get back now into Genesis, missing it last week, um, we want to, this morning, it'll be kind of part two of two weeks ago, when we looked at what we'd call the way of Cain. And this morning we want to kind of title this one, The Way of Abel. And as we came to chapter 4, you'll remember, as we just read, that um, we saw the birth of Adam and Eve's first two children, which were Cain and Abel. And we saw in the offerings that they brought to the Lord that there was a right way and a wrong way to offer unto God. We talked about how, even though the Bible doesn't mention it, there had to be some teaching going on by Adam to his kids that there was a God of what he experienced in the garden that God was to be worshipped. And so it wasn't just out of the blue this happened, but you could see then the two boys now came and sought to offer to God, to worship God, and brought him both um, brought him a gift. And again, Abel's was a, a gift offered in faith, um, where Cain's was one that was really of himself, and that was the difference between the two. Uh, Cain came with his own offering. 
um, and the Lord dejected it, rejected it because he wasn't really trusting in God. Um, and again, we, we looked at that, this thoroughly in that passage uh, when we taught that. And as believers, I think it's important that we try to really lock in today, maybe for the first time or as a good reminder, that that this is an important message for you and I. Um, sometimes we are walking in the Lord, we're growing in the Lord, maybe we're new in the Lord, and we wonder, you know, what would the Lord want? How does he want me to live? Well, this is one of the key foundations of how we're to live this way of faith. Um, if you think about it, it's interesting that all the years later after now, there's been thousands of years that have passed since Abel, um, we see that this is the same message. As God was saying to them, the first two uh, kids on the earth, if you will, uh, when you approach me, come in this way. Um, he's not. He hasn't changed. He's still saying today that come by the way of faith. It reminds you what Proverbs 14:12 says, when it says, "There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end, it is the way of death." And so we know that, don't we? We know that there's a tendency in us not to go the right way, not to do things the right way, not to do things God's way. And so again, how important this morning it is that we realize and try to understand and get it down in our lives that coming to God in, with a faith and trust in Him, a reliance upon Him, is a thing that He is always looking for. He'll never stop looking for that in our lives. And again, it hasn't changed from the Old to the New Testament. Those that say the God of the Old Testament is kind of a grumpy God, <laughs> and the God of the New Testament is a God of love, they really don't understand that it's the same God, and He really hasn't changed. And we see this when we look at some passages in the New Testament. If you look at Hebrews 11 at verse 5, it's up on the screen. It says, Without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. And so we see the very thing that we're seeing in the book of Genesis that is in the book of Hebrews, that it's impossible to please God without faith. Galatians 5.6 For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. And so that's what Paul was saying to those that he was writing to, and the same is true for you and I, that you know, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, that doesn't really fit today, whether you're extremely religious or you wouldn't be religious. None of that stuff is what matters. What really matters is, is, there, is there faith in your life, and does that faith work through your life and show itself in love? And then John 8.24 confirms it as well. Therefore I say to you that you will die in your sins. This is Jesus speaking. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So again, the key thing there is belief, faith. And so again, how important that we learn this, you guys. And that it is really becomes just a kind of a good habit in our life. That this is how God wants us to come to Him. And, and so... It's a vital thing that we want to understand. Now, two weeks ago, as we looked at Cain's life, we saw that we saw in Cain the life that seeks to do things in its own way. When you read the Genesis account, and as we just did, and it seems like, what's the deal? I mean, it doesn't seem there was any difference. Why did God reject Cain's and not Abel's? We understood, and as we went into that teaching, we went into the book of Hebrews, and it's very clear there why. It was because Again, Abel brought his in faith. And so we want to understand that Cain's life was a life that really is a downward spiral. And and I would ask you, and you know this, you look at any life that seeks to turn its back on God and live its own way, 
And it really is a process of a downward spiral. And Cain's life was a, it's a horrible life. I gave you six things when we were in that portion that just one thing after the next, one thing led to the next, to the next, to the next, until what happened? His life was just a mess, you know? And fearing for his life, God said, I'll put a mark over you, but you're, you're banished. And, and that's what sin is like. And, and again, uh, it's a horrible thing. And, and so if you miss that, you might want to pick up a CD or go online and listen to the message and it'll bring you up to speed. But So we understand that about Cain's, but what we want to understand is we want to understand, okay, what is the way of Abel? And what is um, the way that God would want me to live? And so as, as clear by looking at Cain's bad life, we get a clear picture of how not to live. We get a, the same picture as we look at Abel's life. Now, as we get into this, one thing I want to do, because I, I want to make sure that I try to help you understand the scriptures, I want to just give you an overview before we look at that of what does the remainder, because last time we got up to verse 16. So what does verse 17 on through chapter 5 in Genesis talk about? And it's one of those passages of scripture, if you just look at your Bible, you'll see all these names. And not only do you realize, uh uh-oh, it's one of those passages, but there are always names you can't pronounce, right? Say that. Say amen. Thank you. Because I can't pronounce them at times, and sometimes I hope it's not just me, but I know it's you as well. But if you, to give you just an overview, what you have in the end of 4 and 5 is Adam's family line, if you will. From 17 to 24 in chapter 4, it's Cain's line. And then as you get into the end of chapter 4, at verse 25 there, into 5, it's Adam's line through Seth. And like we just read, Seth being the son that replaced Abel. And so you have the, the family genealogy, if you will. In Cain's line, if you just glance down from verse 17 to 24, um, you probably don't recognize many of the names. Uh, there's an Enoch that is mentioned in verse 17, but it's not the Enoch you're thinking about. Um, the Enoch you're thinking about who was with God and was no more, we'll, I'll show you in just a minute, was in Seth's line. And so the Enoch uh, in that line is in the line of Adam. But understand that in Cain's line, uh, it is no more. All of Cain's descendants would have perished in the flood. And we'll get into that starting next week with Noah. And so you and I today can trace ourselves back to Noah and then back to Adam through that line. But in the flood, all of Cain's descendants would have been wiped out. And it's interesting, just a side note, as, as when we were in Genesis 3, when Satan came to Eve and deceived her and said, has God said you will die when you eat of the fruit? Chapter 5 is proof that what God said is true, because what do we see now? We see death did come into the world and man begin to die. In Seth's line, you could scan down verse chapter 5, and you'll notice that there are eight heads of family um, listed, and they take us all the way then to Noah. And so chapter 5 is important because it, it really shows us the development of the human race from Adam to Noah. And if you look at verse 25, you'll see that that is where the birth of the son came, of Seth. And Seth is interesting. Seth means the, uh, the appointed one, or the compensation, or the substitute, as he, as he took the place of Abel. And Seth's birth was important as he could fulfill the promised seed that we read of in Genesis 3.15, as Cain couldn't do that. 
Notice verse 1, it says, This is the book of generations of Adam in the day when God created him, man. He made him in the likeness of God. And so today we would say it's Adam's family tree is what we're looking at. It's his genealogy, if you will. And it's interesting that as here we have the Adam's, the first Adam's genealogy, as we start the book of Matthew on Wednesday night, we have the second Adam, Jesus is Christ, uh, his genealogy, if you will. And, uh, and it's interesting because, you know, those that say, you know, the Bible is just a fable, that it's just man putting together all these different things, and, and it, it really isn't the Word of God, it isn't this book that's above all other books. It's sad because it is a serious book. It is a book of narrative. It tells us stories. It is a book of poetry. But it's also a book of records. And, and this is what we see as we think about this, that it can stand the test of time, and it can stand the test of man. And so it is a book that we want to take seriously. And so chapter 5 lists these ten patriarchs in Adam's line. And I'm not going to read them, but it just shows us that it, it's a pattern. The first, the name is mentioned. Then it's followed by what age he was when his first son was born. Then how long he lived after the grandson was born. Mentioning there were other sons and daughters born. And then the age of his death. And unlike Cain's line, which the names mean nothing, in Seth's line there are a few there that should ring a bell. Because this is a line that was blessed by God. And this is the line that followed after God. And that's interesting. When we, we mention Adam and Seth, and those names ring a bell. But then we come, if you look down at verse 19... We come to Enoch. And Enoch, of course, is a Bible character that you should know because, as verse 24 says, he was the one that walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. So Enoch, unlike only one other person in the history of the world, uh, Elijah, actually never died. There came a point where, in his walk with the Lord, God just took him out and took him up to heaven to be with him. Hebrews 11.5 says this, but by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And so why was he taken up? Well, it says he was pleasing to God. In the passage in Genesis, it says that he walked with God. And really, you could put those two together. The only other person in the Bible here that it talks about that walked with God is Noah. And in both cases, what it means is that Noah and Enoch had intimate fellowship with the Lord. And no doubt it was so intimate that the Lord just one day said, come on, come with me. And if you wonder what Enoch was like, and if Seth's line was really the line that was blessed of God, was really truly a line that his descendants seemed to seek after God more than Cain's did, you can see it in this passage out of Jude. Jude is a New Testament book, one chapter. And in verse 14 and 15, it says it was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation of Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they had done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so these verses in Jude, they are actually prophetic verses. Watch this. Thousands of years before this event that it's talking about hasn't happened yet. You know what it's talking about there? It's talking about the second coming of Christ. And so here we have thousands of years before that event, because it hasn't even happened yet, Enoch is prophesying about it. But what I want you to show you, show you is that, that Enoch was a man of God, 
And this is some of the stuff that was going on in the world back then. So often the prophecies of the Old Testament had application in the Old Testament as well. And so it seems like Enoch, this passage that has its ultimate fulfillment in when Christ comes back with his holy ones, was also prophesying and speaking to the ungodly nations, the ungodly people that were around during his time. And you'll see as we get into the flood that this is true, because why does God come and wipe out the earth during the flood? Because of wickedness and ungodliness had reached such a crescendo. And so here, this is exactly what we see um, as uh, Enoch uh, is preaching against that. And so Enoch was a man who knew God. He had this intimate relationship, intimate fellowship with him, doing God's will, speaking out for God. Without intimacy, you're not going to be able to tell people what God wants. But Enoch had that. He knew God's will. God was speaking to him, telling him these things. And so he could do that. And it's interesting because Enoch and Elijah being the two in the Bible that did not die, many feel they'll be the two witnesses that reappear in the tribulation that Revelation speaks about. You know, Um, Because Hebrews says that it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment and they didn't die, so they're going to come back. And that may or may not be. It could be Moses and Elijah. So that's pretty much the thought there. It's either going to be Enoch and Elijah or it's going to be Moses and Elijah. But anyway, Enoch is one guy you understand. Another one there, if you look down in verse 25, do you recognize the name Methuselah? And again, you don't know much about Methuselah. You do know it's one of the Old Testament names that you can pronounce. His name means javelin or uh, the man of the javelin. So, you know, he's the one that started track and field. Okay. Um, Not really. But he was the son of Enoch and he was Noah's grandfather. And what you know about Methuselah is he's the oldest man in the Bible, living to 969 years. And I could see some of your faces going, oh my goodness, I wouldn't want to live that long. And, uh, well, I wouldn't either. But back then, um, the gene pool wasn't as corrupt as it is today. And so they were much healthier at older ages. And again, showing the Bible, again, look at this, to be more than fable. Luke ties Jesus to Methuselah in chapter 3, verse 37 of Luke as Jesus came in his family line. And so you have writings, again, separated by thousands of years, yet connected and meaningful. And then there's Lamech, verse 29 or 28. And again, he's not real familiar other than the fact that that name should ring a bell because he is the father of Noah. And of course, Noah is one you do. And again, he's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus back in Luke 3. And the name Noah we know, and we'll get into that as we get into chapter 6 next week. And so now if somebody says to you, what is the end of chapter 4 and chapter 5 about? Hopefully you have a little bit of understanding um, of what this is about. And again... It's just like as we got into Matthew chapter 1 last week on Wednesday night and saw that genealogy. It is interesting that these are, this is records here. Did you know in Matthew's genealogy, um, when Rome came in and destroyed Egypt in AD 70, all the records were destroyed. And in order the Messiah had to be traced to the line of David and the line of Abraham. And, and Matthew points that out in his genealogy there. And do you know that is the genealogy record there that you have in your Bibles? Now you say, well, not, not my natural, but those original manuscripts that we still have today is the record. All the other records were destroyed when Rome came in. And so, to, again, it shows us that this is a pretty incredible book that we pack around with us and that we love to read and get into and, and study. Well, then let's go on back then to Abel, though. 
And so that kind of gives you the overview. But now let's look at Abel and look at his example. First of all, there really is little about Abel said in the Bible, if you think about it. He's mentioned here in Genesis 4. Um, Jesus mentions him in Luke, um, Luke 11 and Matthew 23. And he says that he was a righteous man. He's mentioned in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. And we'll, I'll read that verse to you in just a minute in, in dealing with the events we're talking about here in Genesis. And then he's mentioned in Gen, uh, Hebrews 12 as uh, Christ's blood speaks of a better, sac, a better bl- than Abel's because Abel's blood just spoke out for judgment where Christ's blood provided salvation and acceptance and forgiveness. And so on the one hand, Abel is like a little bleep. Okay, really. If you think of the massive content and the time frame of the entire Bible, and you think that this is all that is mentioned by Abel, you realize, my goodness, it's if you're not even looking, it's one of those things that just would beep, and you miss it. But by being mentioned by Christ as a righteous man, and more importantly in Hebrews 11, as a man who had faith on the Lord, all of a sudden you think, well, maybe he's more significant. And the case is, that's true, you guys. This one that really is just a little bleep on the radar, um, has a lot to say to you and I about how we live today. In Hebrews 11.4, it was there that it said, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God tested by about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. And so, this is a key to understanding Abel, and understand how the Lord would have us live, and and it's something that you and I need to get down and understand our life. We know he was Adam and Eve's second child. Cain being the first. And, and that's pretty significant. The fourth person on the earth. You know? We would put that down in our resume. Well, why should I hire you? You know? As the fourth one. But you know, watch this. I want, to, I want you to show some because that's our nature, isn't it? We like to point out those unique things. You know, I used to like to tell people that when I was in the Salvation Army, I was what known as a Sixth generation Salvationists. That's what they call them in the Salvation Army. My kids would have been seventh. And I could actually trace my roots back to a man named John Inch, who was a cousin, a distant cousin of mine, that worked side by side with William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, before it was even called the Salvation Army. Now, when you're in the Salvation Army, that's pretty cool. You know, whoa, aren't you special? (laughs) And, And we do that, don't we? You know, yeah, I'm the fourth one. There was just mom and dad and, you know, that troublemaker Cain. And then there was me, the perfect child, you know. But watch what happens, you guys. And I think this is interesting. Because with the Lord, you know what? That isn't the focus. The place and the position isn't what's important with the Lord. But the posture. And his posture or stance in this world was one of faith and trusting in the living Lord. And that's what God, that's why Abel stuck out to the Lord. And note that, because that's what the Lord is always looking for. The Lord is always looking for our heart stance, if you will, over our position in this world. That's what matters. So often man is about position, isn't he? We spend our lifetime sometimes trying to secure a position, to be known as a person that has this position or come across in this way. And the world pushes us to think that that's what you should do, you know? But most people spend their lifetime doing that. And you realize you never see, you never get it? You know, it happened to me before I hit age 53. But definitely now that I'm 53 years old, I'm able to look back on my life and realize, hmm, I'm not going to do some of the things I thought I would do when I was 20 or 25 or 30. 
It's just not going to happen. You know, I came to the Lord through the Salvation Army ministry. I got saved at a Salvation Army camp, met my wife at a camp. And I thought, you know, someday, God, if you so choose, I'd love to, you know, I'd like to start a camp and a ranch and a conference center. I'll be honest with you right now. I don't know if that's going to happen. Now, if God at the last minute steps in and says, okay, I'm ready, let's do it. I'll say, okay, let's do it. Heal my body. Give me the strength and the energy to go at this again. But you see what I'm saying? That that so often we spend all this energy and time in, and focused in the wrong area that often we never accomplish. It's not God's will. And and so we want to understand that that this. And, and so with Abel, he's accepted because he's this man that is trusting in God. And so the Lord took note of that. He saw that when he brought his offering as he did, there was a trust in God. There was a dependency in God. There was a heart that said, not my will, your will be done. And that leads us then, that, that the Lord is looking for that, but it leads us to a second thing that it isn't so much what we do, really, but it's more about what we don't do in this life. Or we could say, you know, it's a life of faith as opposed to a life of works. Sadly, there are many who think they have faith when in reality... Their life is based entirely upon themselves and what they are doing. And really, it's not faith at all. And I want you to understand this, because this is such a key for our walk with the Lord, that we understand what biblical faith is. That we understand, what is God asking of me? Because the, the great thing is, all of us can do it. It isn't like He's asking us this thing that is we're going to have to work so hard to accomplish. No. He's asking us to come with a trust and reliance upon Him, and we can do that. And so, let me show you something. The kind of life that doesn't understand biblical faith and would come to God might look like this. One, they may believe there is a God, that they may, they may not go so far to believe everything in the Bible, especially that Jesus is the only way, but they are not like those who say there is no God and the Bible is made up by man. Even though they believe in God, though, they never read the Bible. And so, while a person like this thinks they have faith, it is a limited faith defined not by the Bible, but by themselves. And the trust that Abel had really cannot be found in their life. It's an intellectual faith. And remember in James chapter 2, verse 19, it says of the demons that even they believe there is a God and believe God. And so, again, that isn't the type of faith. A second thing a life that is living a false kind of faith might look like is it defines faith wrongly. It is often a religious life. And so it can be a person that goes to church, gives to portions of its income, uh, helps the poor, gets involved in projects uh, to the needy, helps in the community, does things that include the name of God. But all the while, there's really no faith in God at all in their life. There, There's religion, there's appearance, there's maybe the word God is being mentioned, but there's no faith in God. Their faith is in what they do. And so in the end, they think of what they've done and it makes them worthy. But that isn't the truth. That faith is of self and, and of what one's doing as opposed to trusting God. And then three, it might be a life that is extremely busy. And so whereas the truth is, it isn't about what one does, but really doesn't do, to this person, they define their faith by what they do, by their works. This person is involved in a lot, probably too involved. Um, and, it's, and it's for all good and good reasons and good causes, and others admire them and understand that the world loves the self-made active person. The world will reward that person. See? But by their busyness, especially in good things, 
they are then led to believe that's faith when really what they have is works look at Nelson's dictionary and its definition it helps us to understand what we're talking about they say biblical faith is a belief in and confident attitude toward God involving commitment to his will for one's life genuine saving faith is a personal attachment to Christ best thought of as a combination now listen to this of two ideas this is it right here Reliance on Christ and commitment to Him. Saving faith involves personal depending, personally depending on the finished work of Christ's sacrifice as the only basis for forgiveness of sin and entrance into heaven. But saving faith is also a personal commitment of one's life to following Jesus Christ in obedience to His commands. In modern times, faith has been weakened in meaning so that some people use it to mean self-confidence, but in the Bible, true faith is confidence in God or Christ and not in oneself. And this is what Abel and others in the Bible that are we are told, men and women in the Bible that are men and women of faith, were like. They had a reliance on God if it was the Old Testament. If it's the New Testament, they had a reliance upon the Father and the Son, and they were committed to His ways. Understand this. That is your definition of what biblical faith is. It is a reliance on faith in trust in Christ, but it doesn't stop there. It goes on then and seeks to do what he wants one to do. And this is so crucial that you and I understand that this is what we're to do. And so a question is this. I'll give you a pop quiz. And you don't have to tell anybody your answer. God already knows it, so don't think you're hiding it from him. Is does that define you, see? Really, that's what we're here for this morning. We're here just to study God's Word, to let it speak to our hearts, to be pushed back on the right path if we've drifted. And and so if you look at your life and your walk with Christ, does that define you? Does that define your faith in Him? Is there that reliance in your life upon Him? And does that reliance lead then that I want to live my life the way He wants me to live? See? Is there that act of trusting, that moment by moment living in Christ? And I'm not saying that there won't be times when we don't trust, when your faith is weak. We're, we're weak at times, aren't we? This past week, Tom and I went up and saw Dottie. If you don't know, Steve is a man. They've only, they only came to the church three times, and Steve took a 20-foot fall off a ladder backwards with a chainsaw. He landed on his back and just literally busted his body up. Ended up in Harborview. Uh, pretty much, uh, I got to him the first week and he was able to communicate with me. And then really he went into a form of probably no communication for well over a month. Got to the point where we were told that next week she might have to make a decision to take him off the respirator and he would pass away. Well, we kept praying and he turned the corner. They moved him to another facility and he got even stronger. Now he's up in a facility at Providence in Everett and learning everything. I mean, he had to relearn how to swallow and control that thing because... His body had been shut down for so long. Well, in the midst of this, Dottie, his wife, was just there every day, as you can imagine. She catches pneumonia. Five times they've tried to take her out of the ICU unit, Virginia Mason, and her vitals crash, and they can't take her out and move her to another floor because they can't figure out why she can't kick this. So keep her in your prayers. But Tom and I were visiting with her Friday. And as we were visiting with her, I could just sense that she wanted just to get better to get out of the hospital, to get back at Steve's side. And that's commendable. I mean, who would not want a wife like that and want that? But I felt the Lord just tell me, reminder, don't worry. I could see it in her. 
I could see she was worrying about Steve. And so I just took her hand and I said to her, I said, Dottie, listen, don't worry about Steve. God has got him. God is taking care of him. And you just need to let go. And right now you need to just focus on the fact that you need to rest and not be worrying about this so God can just get you strong so you can get back to caring for him. And see, my point is that, that we do that at times. We kind of move out of that place of trusting Christ and we start worrying again, don't we? And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a life that constantly worries and is always trying to control itself and never is trusting in Christ. And so there will be worry, but we don't want to live that extreme life. And that's why Abel's offering was acceptable. And he brought it with this trust and faith in God. And so then that leads, if that's the case of how God wants us to live and the way of Abel is the way of faith, then it leads us to another important thing that we understand is that living this kind of life has to include the Holy Spirit, you guys. This is so important for you and I to understand. It's interesting that not only does God say, this is the offering, this is the life I will accept, but God always does this. He says, and I will help you so you can live this kind of life. And so it has to be by the Spirit. See, we aren't to come in faith and then go out and just work as hard as we can after that to do what God wants us to do. But we are to come in faith and then to seek from there to do what God wants us to do, but to do it under and the, the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. And this is such an important thing that we understand. You know, it's different from the Old Testament saints where the Spirit came upon them and did individuals at times and anointed them. The New Testament, we are New Testament saints or the church age, church age saints. We have this wonderful gift of the Spirit of God. He's been given to us for this purpose to help us walk, to help us live as the Lord would have us live. And so not only does God call us to walk in a specific way, but again, He takes it a further step and gives us the means to walk in that way. And so as relying on Christ and committed to Him defines our faith, then the next question in the pop quiz for you is, are you seeking then to live that way with the help of the Spirit? Now I think today we are again it, it seems like it's always a coming back to the middle of the road it's always a process in our life of coming back to where God wants us to be remember in the book of Acts when Acts is our model by the way of what the church is to look like and you cannot look at the book of Acts without realizing what the church looked like that earth, the first church was a church that was empowered by and led by the spirit of God but remember one time Paul was ministering and he asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit yet. And they said, Holy Spirit, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And make sure that that isn't true of you today. I think in the church today, it's very easy to get so doctrinal and so theological and so heavy in our mindset and our intellect that we kind of, that takes the place. Information and knowledge takes the place of just the supernatural working of the Spirit of God in our life. The other thing that's taking place in the church today is there is way too much of man in the church. There is too much gimmickry going on, if that's such a word. Someone will tell me later if I blew that one. But you understand what I mean. You know, there's self-help book and idea book after, after. You know, I told somebody today with our church we have caller ID. Don't you love caller ID? But you say, well, why would you like caller ID at church? Well, then when you call, I don't have to answer it. I know, no, that's not why. 
But when I see numbers and they have area codes that I don't recognize, I know who it's going to be. It's going to be a ministry that's sole purpose is to survive on churches and they are trying to get me to buy in to the latest thing and then to convince you to buy into it too. When all the while, and I'm not saying all that stuff is bad, but all the while has that stuff taken the place then of the Spirit of God's working within the church, see? And so maybe this morning what Paul had to do there and ask those believers in the first days is, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Maybe that's a good point to some of us today is that you're right, I've come to Christ, I'm, I go to church, I understand all that, but you know, I really haven't given much thought to the relying upon the Spirit's leading and the Spirit's power in my life. And so it really does apply to us. A couple of weeks ago I brought up these verses to you out of Zechariah and Acts where God told Zechariah, or he actually told Zerubbabel there, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And that was awesome because he was telling Zerubbabel, as you go to fight, okay, Listen, I'll tell you a new way to fight. Don't fight like you're used to fighting. But do it in my spirit. Let my spirit be the one that goes for you. And what did Jesus tell the early church? He said, you know, don't leave Jerusalem. What does it say in Acts 1-8? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And think about this, you guys. How important that was that Jesus said to him, listen, I've been ministering with you for three years. I've been preparing you. I've been giving you little. You've gone launched out and you've done some of the things I've told you to do. But I'm leaving. And it's all going to be on your shoulders. But listen, before you start ministry, wait in Jerusalem until my Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so how important this is for you and I, and God desires it for each one of our lives, that we live a life of faith but that that faith is mixed with then the power of the Spirit in our life. You know, I did a quick word search. And I found if you do a word search in the New Testament, you'll find the words Holy Spirit over 90 times. Now listen, they don't all talk about what we're talking about right here. There's other reasons the Holy Spirit is mentioned. But if you could take the New Testament and say the Holy Spirit is mentioned directly 90 times, isn't it saying something? that the church today, the New Testament church today, is to be a church of the Spirit of God, led of the Spirit of God. It's so important for you and I to understand that. You know, we need to understand that it's possible that um, being under the Spirit's power isn't going to happen automatically. Remember Paul, when the Galatians came to the Lord, and then the Judaizers came in and said, yeah, that's fine what Paul's teaching, but you need to put yourself back under the law. You need to be circumcised and all this. Look what Paul said in Galatians 3 there. He said, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was public, publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And I'm so thankful for that passage of Scripture. Because there has been so many times in my life, and I know there will be more times where God will say to me, Scott, Scott, are you trying to do the ministry in your own strength? Or are you going to do them in my spirit? And you guys, that's a good word for all of us this morning. See, it's possible to come to Christ, to have genuine faith in Christ, but then we try to do what Christ wants to do. We try to live the life that He wants us to live, but we are trying to do it without the work of the Spirit in our life. And so it's important we understand 
that we need the Holy Spirit. And you know what's incredible? All we have to do is ask. You know the passage in Luke 11. It's going to show up here. Where Jesus said, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. And knock will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to good give, good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him? And so again, you know, you could say, well, Scott, that's not what this passage is talking about, or this or that. And I just, I would tell you, you're missing it. It's so simple. It's so clear. God is saying there, Jesus said it, if you ask the Father for the Spirit, He will give it to you. 1 Thessalonians 4.8 refers to God as the God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. And what did Paul say to the Ephesian church? He said, don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And the NIV translates it, don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill and control your life. And if you know your Greek, you know what Paul says there. It's, a, it's to be filled, and it's a continual process in the Greek. There's a, a be and being filled constantly in your life. And so, you guys, as we keep making our way through the book of Genesis, Genesis 4 and 5 is an important text. It is the way, if you remember nothing else, and I don't care if you remember the genealogy junk, you know, I won't remember. You come up and ask me in six months. Just test me. Say, Scott, what's Genesis 5 about? And don't open your Bible. <laughs> you know, but if you remember nothing else, remember that Genesis 4 and 5 deals with Cain and Abel. And the message of Cain and Abel is Cain's life was a self-made life. And as a result, that generation and that line is gone. But Abel's line led to Seth's and on and on and on was a godly line. And so that is what the Lord wants you and I to see this morning. He wants us to understand that that's how He wants us to come to Him. Like Nelson's help to see. It's a reliance upon God. And then it's a determination to do what He says. And so may you and I understand that this morning. May that be clear in our lives once and for all that that is the faith that God wants. And God wants that type of faith in our life. And then He wants us to depend upon His Holy Spirit to bring that about. And you know, if that isn't true in your life, then before you leave this morning, you know, God is an awesome God and He can hear prayers and answer prayers mighty quickly. And all you need to do is say, Lord, man, you hit me this morning because I slipped back into my own ways, Lord. And maybe for some of you, the whole thing with the Holy Spirit has just hit you in a way that you realize that you love Christ and you're living for Christ, but you are not giving the Spirit the place in your life that the Spirit wants to have in your life. How important it is, you guys, that you and I are walking in the Spirit and by the Spirit. And so, I encourage you to live that way. You know, who knows what this week holds? You think you got your week mapped out? Someone came up to me today and said, can I meet with you Tuesday at this time? And I've got a little piece of paper because my computer has been down now for two weeks. Dell is working on it and and uh, thus there's my appointment book somewhere wherever my computer is right now. I don't know where it is. You know, I shipped it away. But you know what? God has His plans for us this week. 
Oh, you've set your appointment book? You've marked your calendar? Well, I tell you, would you make sure you leave space each day for that which is on God's heart and that which the Spirit wants to do? There's going to be a work this week the Spirit wants to do in every one of our lives. And there'll be a work this week that the Spirit wants to do through our lives. And if you are not tuned into the Spirit, you won't do it. You won't hear it. You'll miss it. But if you are tuned into the Spirit, then you'll all of a sudden see that thing that wasn't on the calendar. You'll see that interruption that all of a sudden comes out of nowhere. And you'll realize that's the Spirit's leading and the Spirit's speaking to you. So, what an awesome thing the Lord has given us. How to live and the means to live. And may God impress upon our hearts to do that. Amen? Let's stand.